hello and welcome to another episode of Scientology Fair Game. Hello, Mikey. Hello, Lily. <laughs> People are calling me that now. It's so cute. <laughs> I know. They're like, hi, I Lily. Know. <laughs> I started a trend. I'm you a, did. That's, a, that's amazing. I'm All a right. social influencer. <laughs> Look at you, Mikey. Oh, wow. <laughs> All right. Uh, you want to introduce our special guest? Yes, I do. This is someone whom I have known for, oh, many decades mm-hmm. and is one of the nicest, smartest, kindest people that I ever had the pleasure of dealing with in the Sea Org. Uh, He is the author of a wonderful book about his experiences in Scientology and the Sea Org called Counterfeit Dreams. Hi there, Jeff Hawkins. It's wonderful to have you with us today. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. So, Jeff, let's go over just briefly, Mike, if you want to go over uh, Jeff's history, or or Jeff could do it himself. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> and and you guys were in the Sea Organization together up at Gold Base, yes, correct, yes, yes, for yes. many, many, many years. And, and yeah. Jeff and I worked together for various reasons on different things. He was always in marketing. I was either in PR or OSA, and the two sort of crossed over quite a lot. So Jeff and I worked together like on many different varied things but let's let's as you said leah let's start with jeff's history because apart from hannah whitfield who we talked to on the blog a couple of times i think uh jeff is probably the longest term scientologist and seog member that we have had on the show oh wow or maybe janice Anyway, he he's been around one of one of a handful, right? One yes, of the, yes, a, a yeah. very a very limited handful. And if you can just give us a brief history, Jeff, so so the people out there know who you are and and the authority from which you speak. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I was um, I got into Scientology in nineteen end of nineteen sixty seven uh, in Los Angeles. Then I decided to join staff um, at the publications org, which was uh, at St. Hill at the time. So I went to England, got to St. Hill. They said that the pubs org had moved to Edinburgh. So I went to Edinburgh, joined the pubs org. And then we we had to get out of Edinburgh because there was a fear that they were going to seize the book stocks. So we moved to Copenhagen. And uh, I was in Copenhagen for five or six years, and then I went to the ship. Okay, just let me clarify, Jeff. For people that don't know, the PubZorg is the organization that Hubbard set up to publish his books. And there are two of them. This was the original, now called New Era Publications, still located in Copenhagen. And there is a second organization called Bridge Publications located in Los Angeles that yep. publishes Hubbard's books for the Americas. And, and Copenhagen or New Era Publications publishes Hubbard's books for the rest of the world. And right, right. they are in-house publishers and they have printing presses and all to churn out uh, volumes of, of uh, paper. I have a question. Yeah. And what is uh, ASI that's on Hollywood Boulevard in, in Hollywood, California? Well, that, that is now called Galaxy Press or something. But uh, I, actually, I'm not even sure what it's called. But ASI stands for Author Services, Inc. Okay. And it was a profit-making corporation established in the early 1980s as L. Ron Hubbard's literary agency. And in fact, what it was, it, that was where David Miscavige was first located at Author Services, and it was a cutout for Hubbard. I mean, they right. did perform the function of trying to sell his books and arrange movie deals. I mean, they were the people that got the Battlefield Earth made, Raspberry film made. Um, 
but the what they really were was a Sea Org staffed organization. In other words, all the members of Author Services were members of the Sea Organization, the 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 ultimate high level Scientologists in the world, and they controlled Scientology through Author Services, but pretended to only be engaged in the the commercial activities of selling L. Ron Hubbard's writings. It was a way of keeping him insulated from governmental probes into his control of Scientology. And it's still existing. It's still there. It still exists. Yeah. Yeah. It has not much function these days other than trying to hawk Hubbard's old fiction works. And to whom? To the general public. But, But the general public is not buying L. Ron Hubbard's books. But they'll continue to be subsidized and operate forever because they think that they are accomplishing something by trying to sell and pitch Hubbard's fiction books. They don't sell them. You're right, Leah. They, yeah, they, right. The only people that ever buy Hubbard fiction books are Scientologists. Right. And usually it's the third or fourth edition of the same crappy book. Yeah, I have 20 books of the same kind in my... Yeah. The other question I wanted to ask about ASI, Arthur Services, whatever it's called now, is that they, you know, I still see promotions for writers of the future and they somehow have finagled, you know, like real writers that are not Scientologists into this, you know, writers of the future thing. Then that's, you know, I want people to be aware this is another way of Scientology to get their, to get their, their hands on you to exploit you and to take your money and to get you in the fold of Scientology. There is no other reason, right? Correct. Yeah. I mean, what they do is they take aspiring writers who probably won't ever get published anywhere else, and they kind of bring them in and wine and dine them and hold these events and and workshops, and then they put out an anthology once a year of science fiction writings by these people and it gives them an opportunity to be published i see although they don't really understand that by being published in the writers of the future they're basically lending their names to, to scientology supporting yeah supporting yeah. l ron hubbard and thus scientology okay but sorry all right sorry is. sorry jeff thank you for that all right, so Jeff, you were, and then you went to the Apollo, which is the Scientology Sea Org ship, yeah, with, to work with L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah, I, I first went in in 1971 for for training mm-hmm. for a, uh, executive training, and then I went back to Pubs as its commanding officer okay. in 1972. Then I went back to the ship. Actually, Hubbard uh, himself called for me specifically to come and be part of the marketing unit on the ship. And Jeff, just for people, I mean, uh, you know, we don't, I don't ask this much, but, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to ask, because people don't know this either, you know, Mike knew L. Ron Hubbard and want to know what you both thought of and experienced with knowing and working beside L. Ron Hubbard and what he was like. He was, he was always bigger than life mm-hmm. that way. I mean, he was a physically big man. He was kind of like if you took an ordinary sized person and just inflated them, uh, you know, about 50%. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was that. He was just a big, a big guy. And he tended, if he walked into a room, he tended to have a commanding presence. Mm-hmm. In other words, all the eyes would turn to him not only because of who he was, but just because of his physical size and presence. Right. And you had all the kind of uh, perception of this man as being somewhat of a, you know, a deity, right? The savior exactly. of mankind. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when I went to the ship, I thought that he would be able to read my mind and everything, you know? Right. It right. was that kind of a thing. Right. You know? Yes. Mike, same? Oh, absolutely. Right. 
I remember my first encounter with with Hubbard was he was standing outside his his uh, office. He had an office on the top deck of the Apollo, and it, you know it was a, it was a big office compared to everybody else's. And he would come out and hold court outside of his office with his closest aides each night before he went to bed, like at four or five a.m. Mm-hmm. And I was running up the stairs to deliver something to one of those aides up there. And I ran up the stairs and I wasn't really paying attention and nearly bumped into him. And I was absolutely mortified. I was like, oh my God, I've nearly knocked over the Commodore. I don't think I could have knocked him over, but I, right. you know, I was like a skinny 18 year old. Right. But right. he looked down and said, and, and this is one of the things about Hubbard that people don't totally understand. He wasn't just an ogre. Right. He had this, this persona that he could turn on and be incredibly charming. Of course. And incredibly, and incredibly effusive and friendly. And he looked down at me and said, oh, I don't want to get in the way of a busy man. Go on. And, <laughs> you know. All the aides that were standing around were like <gasps> holding their breath. Oh my God, this guy's just, he like, this guy's just toast. He's going to be, right. you know, thrown trouble, overboard, overboard, something right. terrible. Yeah. Yes. Nope. He was like, and I thought, oh my God, I've survived my first encounter. It's like, it, you know, wow. And wasn't that great? And isn't he nice? And, you know, and I worked with him a lot more after that. Many, many, like a, a lot. And uh, he could roll from being uh, an absolute, almost crazy, insane monster, screaming and red-faced and pounding his fist on the table to the, the you know, life of the party jokester and all friends and and hey how are you and it's great yeah, yeah. to see you so of course jeff's description of larger than life is one that i use often and right. and even russell miller in his brilliant unauthorized biography of hubbard goes to great lengths to say look say what you want about all the things that he may have done or said or invented or lied about, he was certainly a charismatic figure. People always remember him for his presence and charisma. And he... I mean, Mike, I think that that could be said for, you know, I might be uh, using the wrong term, but, you know, I think that could be said for most horrific, tyrannical evil leaders of the world that they were you know charismatic and charming i mean that is how charismatic and charming yes yes (laughs) right yes yes leah you know uh, i refer often to martha stout who's a professor from harvard who wrote this book called the sociopath next door which i i refer everybody to all the time and she says in their repeatedly Look, a sociopath learns or has often these very social characteristics that yes. trick people into believing that they're just nice guys. Yeah. And that's how they sucker a lot of people. Yeah. And I, I believe that that is very true. Yes. I mean, even David Miscavige, who doesn't have, like, Hubbard had some redeeming qualities in that I truly believe that he thought he may be helping people in some instances. Sure. Like, actually believed that that was what he was doing. Right. Miscavige has no redeeming qualities. He doesn't believe he's ever helped anybody or doesn't want to help anybody, et cetera, et cetera. But right. even he can be in, enormously charming yeah. in social circumstances. And then walk away and, you know, curse like a, a drunken sailor about what an asshole he just complimented. Right. <laughs> yes. Mm. Yes. Yep. Understood. So, Jeff, you uh, were on the ship and then later you, you ended up on, on the new marketing team uh, that was being formed and you moved to Clearwater, Florida, right? To flag? Yeah. <clears throat> well, the whole ship 
moved to Clearwater at that point in 1976. With the intention of making Clearwater, Florida, the first Scientology city, right? Yeah, that was the, well, the ship was called Flag because it was the flagship. Mm-hmm. And then we moved to Clearwater, and that was called the Flag Land Base. Mm, I didn't know that. It's It was the ship's land base. Ah, now that makes sense. Look at this, Mike. I had this <laughs> misunderstood this whole time. It makes sense now. Maybe it's true what Elrod Hubbard says. Like, if you don't you know, clear all the words you don't understand, you're never going to. So maybe I couldn't get it yeah. together to be a good Scientologist. <laughs> but somehow I made it to OT6. And- yeah. But I got to tell you one one story about the ship. Yeah. When I arrived, the first job that I was assigned to do in the in the marketing unit was a brochure for the port that we were in, mm. which was Willemstadt uh, in Curacao. And I had to do a brochure all about the port and what a great port it was. Okay. So the first thing I had to do was go and meet with the Chamber of Commerce of Willemstadt and talk with them about the brochure and what they needed, right? Only I didn't have a suit. And this was definitely a suit and tie meeting, right? Okay. So I was, I was pretty fucked. You know, I didn't have a suit or anything. But the, the kid that had the, the, the uh, bed above mine in the men's storm graciously uh, loaned me his suit so I could take the meeting. Right. And that kid was named Mike Rinder. Oh, my. (laughs) I didn't know that, Jeff. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. Wow. Mike, do you not remember this? This is so cute. I don't don't remember that at all. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's it's so funny because people, people usually come up to me and go, Oh, well, don't you remember when blah, blah, blah? And I go, mm, no. And it's usually <laughs> then used against me. Like, yeah, the motherfucker never, he'll never admit to anything. He doesn't oh. admit to all the bad <laughs> shit he got involved in and blah, blah, blah. And I just, it just, uh, I don't remember it. So when someone says something, something nice. that I did nice <laughs> that I don't remember, I feel, I feel a bit vindicated. Uh, yeah. That's sweet, Mikey. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, no. Mike, Mike saved my ass that day. Yeah. <laughs> and and can I just ask you a question, Jeff? What? Why did you have to create this brochure? What was the purpose? It was of for this? for a public relations, mm-hmm. for port relations, because the ship was always trying to justify its existence oh. to the local authorities. I see. Okay. So if we if we did a nice brochure for them, then it would be like, oh no, those are the people that did that nice brochure for us. So they're okay. So lay off of them. You know? Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. Okay. Remember, Leah, that that the Apollo was thrown out of Greece, thrown out of Morocco, thrown out of Spain, thrown out of Portugal. And like, why was that, Mike? Uh, just to, for our, the people who are just like tuning in and don't know, because for various reasons, but mostly because. Hubbard had this this idea that he could pretend that the Apollo and and the people on board the Apollo had nothing to do with Scientology, that this was the Operation and Transport Corporation, or OTC. Hmm. And by the way, OTC mm-hmm. is like this, this clever inside joke, OTs at sea. <gasps> on... <laughs> I can't. Oh my god. Okay, so yeah. it was OTC and every place what would happen is that they would find out that this was really L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology and it would create like why are they lying? What's going on? We don't right. want them here. And it, you know, it's the same thing when we first went to Clearwater and it was the United Churches of Florida. And as soon as anybody investigated who the United Churches of Florida were, the dumbasses that registered it, registered with like Adi Marin and a bunch of other geo people on the incorporation papers of the United Churches of Florida, and the St. Pete Times went and got the records and went, wait a minute, this is this is not United Churches of Florida. This mm-hmm. is a front group for Scientology. Right. And that instantly starts the 
what the fuck? Are, what ha- what's happening here? Who are these people? Why are they here? What are they doing? Right. And this was the same with the Apollo. So Hubbard came up with all of these ways, like Jeff talks about doing a brochure for Curacao. I was on a unit in Madeira to do surveys for the government there, tourism surveys to popularize tourism because that was going to give us good relations with the local government. Right. Of course, we ended up being stoned out of Madeira by (laughs) locals throwing rocks at the ship. But I love it. You know, the uh, Apollo stars were the same thing. You know, the musical group that that was intended entirely to go out and create goodwill for the Apollo. Right. And failed miserably. But all of these things were his idea of how you create what he called PR area control. What's so funny is it's never uh, it never occurs to Scientology because they can't to just be honest. I know <laughs> to actually just do something that helps another motherfucking person in the world. Like, in, like everything in Scientology is designed. Here's how we lie. Here's how we manipulate. Here's how we infiltrate, and and it, that's why it will continue to fail. Right. Totally true. Yeah. Now, and speaking of genius marketing, genius marketing on your end, Jeff, if, if you're of a certain age, I'd say, I remember these commercials. <laughs> Maybe some of you do. Jeff Hawkins was uh, the genius behind the, what, what, when was it, Mike and, and Jeff? Uh, 1980s. Started the campaign in, in 82. Two, I think it first started. And- yeah, tell people about this this uh, this campaign that you that you geniusly just. I mean, uh, I don't even know if that's a word. Is it geniusly? Uh, I haven't had enough coffee today. Invented a word. Perfect. Thank you, Jeff. Tell us about this amazing campaign that you created. Well, um, this was something I had wanted to do for years. Was um, to a big public Scientology campaign, because I was a gung-ho member. Yes. And I and a gung-ho Sea Org member, and I wanted to get the word out broadly to public people. This was a, a purpose I had had for many years. And I finally had the chance to do it. I made the chance to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to L.A. On, a, on an unrelated mission. And then once when that mission was over, I petitioned to do this campaign uh, to CMON, and they approved it. That's the uh, upper levels of executive strata in yeah, Scientology. Yeah, Commodore's messenger organization. And I had to, I had to fight to do that uh, because at every turn, they were trying to stop me. When I say Ooh. they, I, well, originally it was um, Kerry Gleason who was executive director international. He didn't want me to do that. Why? Because it was outside of his power. Okay. Outside of his power structure. I was doing it under CMO and he didn't want me to do this independent of him. Okay. Cause he wanted praise. He wanted to be responsible. He wanted to he, kiss he wanted the glory. Ass. And, gotcha. and this, and this is a, a theme that goes right through to David Miscavige. Okay. Know? They, they wanted the, they wanted the credit. They wanted the power and they didn't want me to have any credit or power. But, um, so I fought to keep my unit and to, to do this. And, and interestingly enough, it was not Hubbard's marketing tech that I was using (laughs) (laughs) because, and this was interesting. Hubbard had said, he said, our marketing people need to study WOG marketing texts. WOG meaning non-science, a derogatory term that Scientologists use. Uh, Meaning non-Scientology. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. he 
issued orders that we were to study. Well, real marketing uh, that real can help Real marketing you. and real advertising. So I did. Because Alfred Hubbard's marketing is lie, deceive. <laughs> yeah, manipulate. Yeah. It was yeah. all manipulative. Yeah. So I studied advertising. I studied marketing. I studied market research, uh, media buying, all of that stuff pretty intensively to the point where I had a good idea of how to do this. And people would challenge me on some of the things I was doing, and they would say, well, this is not in Hubbard's marketing policy. And And I had an easy out. I would say, well, he said to study these books, and it's in these books. And that would shut them up. And that would shut them up. Now, I have another question for the both of you. Do you think it's odd that a church is obsessed with marketing? I mean, we understand businesses are, right? This is how businesses sell. But, I mean, is this normal for a religious organization to be consumed with deceiving the public? Because we're used to that from, like I said, you know, from products. You know, people say, take this. You know, it's better than this. Eat this. It's better than our rivals. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Are, are we are we used to seeing this from a religion? There are some religions, like the Mormon Church, does a lot of advertising. Wow, I'd put them in the same. Yeah, category. and um, uh-huh. a lot of, I'd say, sort of spiritual subjects do advertising. The Rosicrucians did a lot of advertising, for instance. Um, and, who, and who, who, who the fuck is that? The what? Rosicrucians. <laughs> yeah. It's a, a kind of a, an early cult. Like from yeah. when? Like the 1802? What are we referring back to? <laughs> <laughs> early 1900s. I, I mean, say. if you got to go back that far to give me an example, this should be problematic. <laughs> <laughs> Hubbard was pretty obsessed with the Rosicrucian. Was he? He was. Mm, yes. Interesting. He was obsessed with the Rosicrucians. Now, why? Because, uh, because they, they were, were successful. Because of their, their marketing. Uh, because they were successful at, at getting new people to uh, join. Uh-huh. And he had all of these uh, directives to people uh, like Jeff right. that they were to study the Rosicrucian campaigns huh. to figure out how to duplicate them for Scientology. Uh. Huh. Whatever. So you so you're going outside of of L. Ron Hubbard's genius marketing policies and and trying to get stopped by people within the church, one of which was David Miscavige, but you mm-hmm. somehow come up with this campaign. Yeah. This Dianetics campaign that was launched in 1982 and within a few years. And this is what the volcano and the question yeah. that came on the screen. Do you ever feel do you ever feel depressed? You know, I remember as a child, Mike, you know, reading the screen and going, yeah. You know, like answering the questions that were coming up on the screen. Exactly. Exactly. And those were all surveyed out, all those questions. And it was a it, within a few years, Dianetics was on the bestseller list selling tens of thousands of books every week. Correct? Yes. Yep. And you know, what bothers me about that so much is that Dianetics gets to keep that on, you know, on their books that it's a New York times, New York bestseller. Times number yes. one bestseller. Yes. yes. Yeah. Self-help book. It's a self-help book. Right. Uh, and so then take us from there, Jeff. All right, so we worked out this campaign, and uh, I was working with a media person at the time, and they came to me and said, there's this new thing called cable TV. <laughs> and they said, nobody's buying it yet because it's not being, uh, it, it's not being rated by Nielsen, you know, the Nielsen TV ratings. Yes. So nobody's buying it, but it reaches just the kind of people that we want to reach. And I looked over the, in, the information on the cable TV and I said, uh, I said, let's do it. And my media person said, do you want to run a, a little pilot or something? I said, no, put the whole budget into it. Wow. I was that sure of it. Right. 
I said, put the whole, and it was the first time we had gone national. Before that, we were just buying New York, LA, Chicago, you know, specific cities. Mm -hmm. But this was going to be national. And I thought, oh boy. And it was cheap. Yeah. It was cheap and it was a national audience. So I said, go all in, the whole budget on this cable TV. And that was what started the, the sales just going vertical. Wow. And you know, it was one of those things where the graph went up and then across yes. the ceiling. Right. You know, because we were selling so many books. And we went on all the, all the bestseller lists. And this was with the question ads, which we hadn't run before that. Uh-huh. You know, so this was the first time we did the, que- the question ads and the first time we did cable TV. And it just took off like a rocket. And it was up the wall and across the ceiling with the book sales. And uh, we were selling thir- up to 30,000 books a week. And this wasn't through orgs. You, this was churches. Through, yeah, this was through Walden Books, B. Dalton Bookseller, drugstores, mm-hmm. everything. And I was working with a, a guy named Len Foreman, who had been uh, vice president marketing for Simon and Schuster. And he knew everybody in the publishing industry. And so he taught us how to get books into distribution because we didn't have a clue on how to do that. Like, how do you get books into Barnes and Noble? How do you get books into Walton books? How do you get them to take your books? We had no clue. And it was Len who taught me all how to get into the bookstores, mm-hmm. who to talk to, you know, how to pitch it, you know. And right. so, so we did. And we, by the time we launched uh, on cable TV, we had, I think, 250,000 books out in public bookstores, which was the result of a lot of work to get the books in there. Sure. And, um, and that was one of the factors was that people could go into their local bookstore and find it. Right. Uh, because you can do all the advertising in the world. And if they go into their bookstore and it's not there, you haven't made a sale. Sure. But the books were there. So we had national TV. We had the question ads. And we had books everywhere. Mm-hmm. And that was what did it. Yeah. And David Scavage, I'm sure, was very happy and said, hey, I'm sorry, man. You know, he did it. You know, <laughs> we're all part of the team and amazing work. Well, I, always, I, I always say that he never forgave me for that. And why is that? Because he was not responsible for this, right? He had nothing to do with it. Right, right. And I found out later, and I'd love to know more about this, but I found out later that he had attempted to run a a Dianetics campaign mm-hmm. in the local city of Riverside in the late 1970s. Mm-hmm. And they had made ads that had those people in the white space suits and the white helmets, you know, from, from the book covers. Mm-hmm. They had made a TV ad with space people mm. and they, and they were trying to sell hardbacks, which I always said, was ridiculous. If you want to sell more books, you need to sell paperbacks because then you can get into about three times the outlets. Right. Uh, because local drugstores don't take hardbacks. So they were trying to sell a hardback book with a crappy TV ad. And this was being run from the int base. And I would love to talk to somebody who was a part of that. But this was being run from the int base. And it just failed. Failed utterly. Right. And then right. here comes Jeff and does this great campaign and gets it on all the bestseller lists. And you can imagine how Dave felt about that. Of course. Yeah. And again, you, Jeff wrote a, a book called Counterfeit Dreams that we'll put that up on the, on the website yeah. and all that. But um, uh, tell us about that. You, you ended up at the Gold Base in Riverside County. Yeah. Well, the whole marketing the, the first thing that happened was I was running a, a, my own campaign unit in L.A. Right. I had about 11 staff. 
They were all trained by me. They all knew exactly what to do. Right. Then Dave Miscavige sent his brother, Ronnie, and a guy named Bill Dendu to take over my unit, <laughs> which they did. And then they started adding functions to the unit, like, well, now we're going to do all the magazines. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to do all of the packaging and now we're going to do all of Abel's marketing and we're going to do this. And it was just taking on more. Now we're going to do the mission marketing. And it just became such a nightmare. Uh, nobody had time to do Dianetics campaigns anymore. So it, it died a slow death, the whole campaign. Right. And it was finally killed off around completely around 1991. And you can mark that date on Scientology's graphs. And it just started plummeting. Plummeting. Yes. Right. Yeah. From that date, from 1991. And when I left in 2005, it was still dropping. Right. Just an unending crash on and on and on and on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and never has recovered since. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can't even find Dianetics in most bookstores these days. Yeah, I've looked. I know there's not that many bookstores left, but there are Barnes and Nobles around, and we have a big one. And there's no demand for it, Mike. Nobody wants to read Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nobody. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, Jeff talks about uh, about Ronnie and Bill Dendu, and Mm -hmm. there were some other names of people, you know, like Peter and Carrie Cook and others who were in this marketing area. And I, what Jeff says is very accurate, that, that Dianetics became like a secondary thing and wasn't being given the same importance that it had had. Right. But nevertheless, there was still much more sensible, somewhat uh, inviting marketing being done for Scientology. Right. By Jeff and mm-hmm. Peter and Carrie and Bill and Ronnie and, you know, a, a bunch of other people. Ramina Nunnally was there mm-hmm. and Richard yeah. Nunnally was there. There's a whole bunch of these people, all of whom have gone. Right. They're all no longer there. They've all escaped the Sea Org somehow. And Scientology today lives in the world of like, insanity where the the things that they do and say to try and encourage or entice people to come into Scientology are completely fucking nuts. Mike, we get written, people post uh, letters from Scientology letter writers that says, hi, I see you bought a Dianetics book in 1975. Are you still interested in Scientology? I'd like to answer your questions. I mean, that, I mean, I've seen it, Mike. I know. Yeah. I know. And and it's sort of um, poetic justice Mm -hmm. to see that the people who had the brains and the skill and the intelligence to make promotion that people responded to have all left the tent. And that shabby tent is flapping in the breeze with Mm -hmm. nothing happening inside it anymore. When I left, there were only six people left in marketing, down from 50. And, you know, you might think, well, those, that's the cream of the crop. Those were the best guys. No, they were the, they're the worst guys. The (laughs) ones that are still left. The ones who couldn't do anything. <laughs> so never gotten any trouble. Right. Yeah. yeah. They never gotten any trouble. Yeah. Right. Right. But Mike, when were you chained to, uh, or, or, you know, cleaning out dumpsters without any protective gear, weren't you shoveling, you know, toxic waste on the ship and without, you uh, y- Protective no. gear on? You weren't doing that. Not on the Apollo. Uh-huh. Gotcha. On the free winds, I was. On the free winds, this happened. Yes. I got you. Okay, sorry. Yes, not on the Apollo. I, I mean, there was there was some physical 
stuff that went on, but mostly it was just someone getting mad with someone else and like, you know, shoving them or something uh, right. or yelling matches. But this, this, um, leaping over the table to, uh, and I am recounting now an incident that I recall so vividly with Jeff mm-hmm. of sitting in the WDC, the Watchdog Committee conference room in the CMO International Building, this big conference table where David Miscavige sat on one side and all us peons sat on the other side, paying careful attention to make sure we didn't miss a word that he spoke, mm-hmm. and him asking Jeff some question, which you know, Jeff may remember, but I don't, what the question was, and Jeff responding, and Miscavige literally, like Peter Dinklage in the Elf movie, totally. jumping up on the table, running across the table, and jumping on top of Jeff, sitting on a chair, knocking the chair over with him on top of him. That sort of shit started with the the world of David Miscavige. Uh, I never witnessed that before that time. And Jeff, was this the first time you had witnessed it and experienced it? Uh, that was the most extreme. I don't remember if it was the first time. I think before that, he had thrown a a, a big binder at me, mm-hmm. like right at my chest. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but this was the first real violence. And it, I was presenting a script for an infomercial on Dianetics, which I had done before. Mm-hmm. And, and right away, he started saying, do you see how he talks to me? Look at how he talks to me. See how, look at how he's looking at me. He started talking like that. Mm -hmm. And everybody was, stop looking at him. Stop looking at him. You know, and I was like, (laughs) (laughs) and I didn't know what to do uh, because I wasn't doing anything, but he was like, see how he looks at me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then he just got up and leapt across the the table. He was a very angry elf at that point, and uh, leapt across the table and knocked me to the ground. And at the time, did you feel this is justified because this is the leader of my church, and I must have done something to elicit this abuse? I, I didn't. I didn't think that because I knew that I hadn't done anything wrong. Right. But everybody around me was like, "Oh, he." He, he made COB angry, so it's his fault, you know? Right. So, so, yeah, it was my fault. I was the one who went into security checking and, and got in trouble for that. For being assaulted. For being assaulted, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 witnessed, I, I witnessed Mike being thrown on the floor in a mm-hmm. meeting, you know? Yes, so, Jeff, what, uh, other than, I mean, the obvious, right? Like, it's obvious, but most people didn't, right, leave. Yeah. After experiencing for myself what I experienced, what Mike experienced, a lot of us didn't leave when we should have left. Uh, what, what made you leave after being such a dedicated and loyal Scientologist and Sea Org member? Well, you know, I had run into shitty people before. Shitty executives in Scientology. I always had the attitude that that was temporary, right? And that they they would leave, and they always did. And these people will disappear, and I will persevere. I had a a good friend when I worked in um, in the pubs org in Denmark, uh, John Sanborn, who was an old old timer. He had worked with Hubbard and Phoenix in in the fifties. And he was, he was a great guy. And he said to me one day, he said, people think we're dedicated. You know, people say we're dedicated. He said, no, we're just a bunch of stubborn sons of bitches that won't give up. Right, right, right. And that was kind of, you know, that was kind of my attitude. I was a stubborn son of a bitch who wasn't going to give up on the dream. Right. And if these people came along and they were abusive and they were this and they were that, I was like, okay, I'm going to outlast you. Right. Because I am a bigger, stubborn son of a bitch than you are. And the dream, I just want to remind everybody, is to make Scientology uh, 80% of the planet Scientologist. That is the dream. 
that all Scientologists are working toward to convert 80% of the planet to Scientology. Go ahead. Yeah. So that was my attitude when anything bad happened was this is temporary. This is just a distraction. Right. Let's, let's press on and let's be stubborn sons of bitches. And, but I got to the point with David Miscavige that I realized this is not going to change. This is not going to get better. This is how it's going to be from this point to infinity. It's going to be an abusive, horrible, horrible subject. You know, if Scientology worked, then the ant base would be paradise on earth. It would be the best place that anybody could be, but it's not, it's the worst. It's the worst place that anyone could be. It's horrible. You're you're absolutely right. And if you haven't seen going clear, you should. Yeah. The other thing I want to say, just to add on to what you're saying is if Scientology worked, it would offer its services at, at, at a rate that people could afford. It would, it would, it would work on donations. It would work on uh, charity. It would work on uh, creating a better life for Scientologists, which it does the opposite, right? They're living below their means. They're in debt. They don't have time to spend with their families. It wouldn't have restrictive policies that control who you can and cannot talk to. It wouldn't have fair game policies that go after people who are speaking the truth about what they're doing. They wouldn't have, I mean, because couldn't someone say, Mike, that um, because isn't this kind of going along the line of what most Scientologists say that the management is bad, but Scientology is good because I don't agree with that. Yeah. I, I, Leah, you make a great point. If Scientology really worked, Mm -hmm. people would be beating down the doors to get it. It would be more popular than an iPhone. I mean, it, People get an iPhone and get stand in line for hours to buy one at nine hundred or a thousand dollars or whatever for a phone because yeah. they think that it's good and that it works real good. Right. If Scientology worked and actually provided spiritual freedom, happiness, freedom from illness, uh, cures for your blindness, for your disease, for cancer, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Imagine if that really was true, right? Then it would be like it would be like a sensation, yes. And people would be demanding it all over the place. The, yes. The proof that it doesn't work is the fact that n- <laughs> these Scientology organizations today are dead. Right. Yep. Right. So you knew that this was what Scientology was going to be. When I realized that it was not never going to get better and it was always going to be this horrible, yeah, I said, I'm out of here. I have got to get out of here, whatever it takes. You know? Yes. And so eventually this left, this, this, you, you ended up leaving Scientology in 2005. Yeah. And in 2009, you wrote uh, your memoir again, Counterfeit Dreams. And, um, and in 2010, you went on CNN's Anderson Cooper's um, his 360 program with Marty Rathbun, yep. and you talked about the violence at the end base and and with David Miscavige. And I want to ask you: Were you ever? Did you ever go to the authorities with your story, um, with what you experienced and witnessed? I spent a full day with the FBI and told them everything that was going on at the end base. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing ever came of that, but um, but they do have record of of everything I said. And the same with you, Mike. And the same, you've gone to the FBI, you've gone to the local authorities. I personally have gone with Mike to the sheriff's department of Riverside County to let them know this is continuing. Um, when Valerie Haney left, uh, uh, escaped through the trunk of a car, what five years ago, Mike? Not even. Yeah, about I guess. Valerie's first uh, stop was again to the authorities. Uh, she has spoken to the Riverside County Sheriff's Office. Um, she has gone to uh, the FBI as well. 
and uh, let them know that these horrific abuses continue to happen. And if David Miscavige is not physically at the gold base, um, these people are still there. The senior executives of Scientology who were abused, uh, Shelley Miscavige is still missing, and um, everybody should just know, uh, from what you said before, Mike, is, you know, uh, did Mike Rinder tell his... Yes, Mike has told the FBI and anyone who's willing to listen not only what happened to him, but what he himself has done. So for the two people who continue to say that, go and fuck yourselves or do some fucking thing that makes some change in the victims uh, of Scientology's world and stop coming for people who are doing the fucking work. Anyway. Okay. So you guys have let the FBI know, like I said, so have presents. People who have were lucky enough to escape these facilities, they also. So you want to yell at anybody, yell at the FBI. Uh, you want to yell at anybody, go to your uh, sheriff's department, uh, your councilmen and women, your senators, your congressmen and women, and you can do something. And also, Mike, please put up the CNN interview again. I like. I just yes, uh, yes. I've got it on my list here, Lily. And thank you, baby. And since and since this time, Jeff, why don't you tell us what you're doing? Well, I'm living in uh, in Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. and I have a uh, a graphic design firm. Congratulations! What's the name of it? Give it a plug. Yeah, it's called uh, Skyhawk Studios. Yeah, and I do I do uh, logos, I do brochures, posters, whatever the client needs, and websites, and uh, do all kinds of stuff. So that's that's what I do for work. Just want to make sure, Jeff, you're not using Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard's marketing uh, policies, <laughs> right? No. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. He's a member of Wise. It doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't work. Oh, okay. Yeah, neither does Scientology. <laughs> okay, but uh, and you have continued to help people um, who are leaving Scientology and and to help them to avoid uh, getting in in the first place, which is why you continue to be on programs that we do. You continue to be on our podcast. You've written a book and you continue to speak out and uh we cannot thank you enough for continuing this this work and jeff i'm i'm so happy to see that you're doing well in life and that you are um continuing on doing what you are genius at and i wish you all the success and happiness in the world well thank you so much yeah me too jeff and i just want to give a bit of a plug for counterfeit dreams because Like I said at the outset, Jeff is a super, super intelligent, smart, articulate guy. And that is what his book is, is a very, very insightful, thoughtful, articulate, intelligent assessment of Scientology and its promises and its failures to deliver on those promises. That's how I would summarize his his book i mean it's his experiences but it's very insightful and i recommend it to anybody that really wants to understand kind of the the psychology of scientology mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely all right well listen you guys uh thank you jeff once again and uh to all of you who continue to listen and support us we thank you wholeheartedly we love you all until next time (laughs) (laughs) all right bye bye